0: Well, keeping me company in the studio here till 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got the economist Ruth Lee, Mary Dajewski, who's the columnist at The Independent, and author James Bloodworth. And you know the drill on this show by now, it's not just about us and our thoughts, no, it's about you at home as well. And yours, what is on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me. Email us directly at gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me at Michelle michellejubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can get us across all social media platforms, listen to us on DAB Radio Plus. Uh, What else? Oh yeah, the app. Have you got the app yet? You can watch us back on the app. Uh, We're everywhere. I think that's the short version. Anyway, our top story tonight then, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has unveiled his new plan for tackling illegal immigration. Male migrants that reach the UK on small boats across the channel will be flown to Rwanda while their asylum claims are processed. Well, our home and security editor Mark White has been to Kent with the Prime Minister to look at these proposals.
1: Entering Dover Harbour, the all too familiar sight of yet another border force vessel arriving here packed with would-be asylum seekers. Hundreds of people pulled from small boats in the middle of the English Channel. 28,500 last year alone, and already this year it's clear that record is set to be smashed. The Prime Minister, deeply frustrated by his government's inability to stem the flow of small boats, is now putting himself front and centre of those efforts, travelling to Kent to meet the teams at the sharp end, as the Royal Navy takes over command and control of channel operations and in a major shift of policy, the announcement that most of those who arrive here illegally will be sent on a one-way journey to Rwanda after that African nation agreed a multi-million pound deal with the UK.
2: So from today, our new migration and economic development partnership will mean that anyone entering the UK illegally as well as those who have arrived illegally since January the 1st may now be relocated to Rwanda. This innovative approach, driven by our shared humanitarian impulse and made possible by Brexit freedoms, will provide safe
3: and legal routes for asylum.
1: 4,000 miles from the UK, the Home Secretary was in the Rwandan capital to see the first in a series of new accommodation blocks being prepared to house the asylum seekers. Those sent here will be processed, and if they're granted asylum, their new life will be in this country. They won't be allowed to settle in the UK. The government is not planning to send women, children, or indeed married men to Rwanda, only single males. But that's still the vast majority of those arriving by small boats. Last year, 70% of small boat arrivals were single men. UK authorities are now operating a fleet of these drones over the channel and from today the Royal Navy takes over command of channel operations. In the weeks ahead these drones will be joined by Navy Wildcat helicopters and a fleet of new patrol boats. Human rights groups have already condemned the plans to send asylum seekers to Rwanda as cruel and inhumane, but one Border Force former senior manager believes it's the right thing to do.
2: Now they won't want to get into the hands of UK authorities because they won't want to go offshore to Rwanda. So the the Navy uh, will be able to intercept those people that don't want to be intercepted.
1: Any move to send asylum seekers to Rwanda could still be some way off as it's inevitable human rights groups will seek to challenge it in the courts. In the meantime, as hundreds continue to arrive by small boat daily, the government says it's also planning to house asylum seekers in purpose-built accommodation centres rather than spending the estimated £5 million a day to put them up in hotels across the country. Mark White, GB News, Kent.
0: Well, goodness me, there is a lot to unpick with some of this. James Bloodworth, let me start with you. Your thoughts on all this?
2: I think it's a silly idea and a gimmick, uh, quite frankly. I think if you want to stop channel crossings, you simply need to process the applications in France or in mainland Europe. The idea that we should send... The idea that it will be cheaper to send people 4,000 miles away to a dictatorship and pay that dictatorship, which has sent death squads to London before to kill... Uh, opponents of Paul Kagame, the dictator of this country, the idea that we should give them vast sums of money to do this, to house migrants in inhumane conditions, are we going to send Ukraine? We're, we're, we're supposed to be making solidarity hey, didn't with Ukraine? did
0: inhumane to me. I was just looking going at it to, on It looked all right.
2: I mean, the, other countries have had these deals with Rwanda before, and many of those migrants disappear because they, they, the conditions there have been fairly atrocious. And so they they disappear and then try to cross the channel again at a later opportunity. I do not think we should be doing a deal like this and paying vast sums of money to a a dictatorship that murders opponents. Um, And are we going to send Ukrainians there? Because there are lots of refugees from Ukraine now in Europe. Are they going to be sent there? And if not, why? There will be accusations of racism then, because are we just sending migrants from the Middle East? I think there's so many problems with this. This scheme that, that I feel like I've only just touched touched the surface.
4: Well, inhumane, Mary. That's what James reckons. What do you well, think? I I have a problem with Rwanda, but I don't have a problem at all with the principle of offshoring um, newly arrived um, migrants or asylum seekers coming over the Channel, because I think that that has become um, a route of choice. And I think um, James mentioned Ukrainians. And you look at the difficulties that Ukrainians are having, who are mostly women and children coming across the whole of Europe, it would actually be much quicker for them to get to Calais, to pay traffickers, to cross the channel, which is not, by the way, every time anybody mentions this, it's talked of, about a perilous journey. It's not a perilous journey. There's very, very small. There was the one capsize with 27 people who died, which we can say 27 <clears throat> people too many. But it's an infinitesimal proportion of the people who successfully crossed the channel, of whom the reporter said 70% are young men. Now, it's not just the UK that has that will if it gets through the courts, have this sort of policy. Because Canada, which, you know, we all think of Canada as being sort of, um, you know, kinder, gentler country, it has very strict rules about admitting single men. You can say that it discriminates very, very strongly against single men coming into the country as as migrants or asylum seekers. So, you know, this
3: is not something that's going
4: to be unique to the UK. Mm.
3: Ruth? Well, of course, we have to wait and see how this actually works out because I think it's still very experimental, if I may say so. But in principle, I support the idea of offshore processing, especially for the young men, the young single men, who are overwhelmingly, surely, economic migrants and not asylum seekers at all. Although it'll be interesting if it comes to men that are actually sort of family men, bringing their wives and children. No, he
0: already said that. If it, he already said if it's <coughs> married men with a family, etc., they don't count in this. It's only for the single. They will be treated men. as. A asylum
3: seekers in this country, that, that is fair. But if, if you've just got a, a single man who is... Predominantly an economic migrant, and I think this makes a lot of sense. And the the problem is that all the other attempts at deterring these uh, traffickers from a, from the Channel have essentially failed. And I think this is a bit of a last resort, if I may say so. We've, I'm sure, the government has tried cooperating with the French, but alas, the French are not always as fre- friendly and cooperative as they might be. And I'm being polite. Um, there's been a sort of an attempt on cracking uh, cracking down on on trafficking gangs, but. This this hasn't really worked. So this is a bit of a last resort. I'm absolutely in favor of it. And when you think about it, you know 28,000 people is a lot of people. And it, 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 at least half of them are from countries like Iraq and Iran, which are not necessarily at c- civil war. If you're from Afghanistan or Syria, different matter. But let, let's <coughs> just look at the breakdown of the people. But that one of the challenges is, Ruth,
0: we don't know where a lot of people are from because they don't have the documentation. They get well, rid actually, of the documentation when I they mean, are I mean, if I may
3: say so, the Daily Mail today, um, you know, which was provided to me by GB News, uh, did actually give a, 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 nas- a breakdown by nationality. Could I say something about Rwanda that seems to be an extremely unpopular country? Uh, it is actually a Commonwealth country, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Do do people realize that?
2: No, yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be.
3: It is a Commonwealth country.
2: They, I mean, and it is
3: it is one of the few Commonwealth countries that actually wasn't part he's of played the uh, Paul um,
2: Kagame, the leader of um, um, the country, um, has played a very successful game of ingratiating himself with Western leaders ever since Bill Clinton. Well, and is, he's still been murdering opponents. It's close a Commonwealth and a free country. And we're and go along lots and lots to Commonwealth.
4: So, let me just maybe add, add something also yeah, you know. um, about the Royal Navy, because one of the most extraordinary things to me through this whole saga of channel crossings is that for the last couple of years, the Navy has basically refused to patrol the channel and said that security of the channel has nothing to do with them, it's nothing to do with national defence, and they seem to prefer keeping the sea lanes open in the South China Sea to patrolling the channel. So it's very interesting to me that now we're getting the Navy actually patrol. To me, this is a matter of national defence and national security, and I think it's something the Navy should be doing.
3: And, um, it, is, and it, is a, it will be a popular move, except for in, it shows, if you look at the various uh, polls, it shows that this will be a popular move. They want some, people want some control over the number of people who are coming into the country. Well, let's
0: mention, you mentioned the number of people. Let me just give you some context uh, at home, shall we? So in 2018, uh, 539 uh, crossings. 2019, 1,823. 2020, we go up to over 8,000. 2021, we go up to over 28,000. And as we've just mentioned in 2022, we look like, we look like we're going to far outweigh that number. Now, something happened in December that I find quite interesting, actually, in the Court of Appeal. There was a ruling, and I'm just going to read out to you a couple of lines from this ruling, because I hear the word illegal a lot. It's flying into my inbox about the illegality of all this. Boris Johnson referenced uh, illegal immigration, migration, all the rest of it. So let me just read this. As the law... Uh, presently sans, an asylum seeker who merely attempts to arrive at the frontiers of the United Kingdom in order to make a claim is not entering or attempting to enter the country unlawfully. Even though an asylum seeker has no valid passport or identity document or prior permission to enter the UK, this does not make his arrival at the port a breach of an immigration law. It went on to say, basically, there'd been a uh, basically like a hearsay about the law, which had been adopted by those who were investigating these cases, and had been basically passed on and on and misunderstood and down the line, etc. So I found that quite interesting about the legality, the illegality. But James, whatever you you know, whatever words we use, for me personally. I think that something has to happen. You cannot simply have 28,000 people, and by the way, this is 28,000 people, that's who we know of. There'll be people that have kind of docked on shore and disappeared and gone, you know, God only knows where. So that's the number we're currently aware of. I would estimate it's slightly higher than that. So you have to do something to try and deter it. We've given tens of millions of pounds uh, to the French government and achieved what looks to me like absolutely nothing. Um, So on and on it continues. People have died and, you know, Americans say it's quite a safe crossing, but they have died nonetheless. So you have to do something. You have to do something.
3: And, you
0: know, you did make a suggestion there that I think is quite sensible. Why can't we try and process them in France? Why hasn't that been adopted, if it's as simple as you suggest?
2: Because I think in this case, I think this example is a gimmick. I think this example is a gimmick. You have Rwanda who's already doing this for other countries and is making, has made this offer. And the politicians in the West still bizarrely have this rosy view of, of Rwanda as this uh, more forward-looking African country, despite the human rights record there. My disagreement is not that you... I, I do think we need to process more offshore to dis- discourage people from taking the route across so the you're channel. you cool with the but principle,
0: that, but not cool with the location.
2: Yes, but the big rise in the number of people coming, this is based on geopolitical things that have happened. So the, 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 the return to power of the Taliban in Afghanistan, that's why there are, there's this massive increase of people leaving Afghanistan. And it's predominantly young men, because in a war zone, as we see in Ukraine, it's predominantly young men who are targeted by uh the they're the enemy of their country in a war russia's targeting yes, young, young, men young men and killing who, them
4: it's not young men who are coming from ukraine it's everybody else who's coming from it's ukraine
2: because but, the young men are but predominantly from fight. war zones it tends to be young men and it's complicated young men are the ones who typically go abroad to then earn when they're young and send money home to their families that's that, always happened do you
0: not think that a large number of these people are economic migrants
2: yes but the thing is britain is a desirable country we live in the fifth richest country in the world and that's a that's that's we're always going to be attractive for people from developing countries. It doesn't just it, it just uh, putting people sending people to Rwanda. That does not take away the kind of the the so we sent them the to luster crazy, that surrounds uh, rich dead, countries. Would
0: you be okay with that?
2: Yeah, I think that's a far better idea.
0: So we have we reached a consensus. That's a far better <laughs> idea. So we can send that. So I think everyone's saying that you're in principle, in agreement with this whole kind of offshore processing of people. Mm-hmm. And by the way, let's see this through to its conclusion then, because it's not just the processing, it's about where you then stay at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So is everyone comfortable? You'd be mm-hmm. processed there and then you'd stay. James, you're not comfortable with Rwanda. I think you two are comfortable with Rwanda. I'm, I'm not particularly comfortable with but, Rwanda.
3: I would prefer you, Jersey. In or in right. interest prefer. Uh, this this is about deterrence. Exactly. and yes. I mean, this it's not is about, about Rwanda, deterrence. is it? It's about <laughs> And yeah. if it is the young men, the economic migrants who are over there in Iran or Iraq or wherever, wanting to come to this country and knowing that they will end up in Rwanda, what do you think they'll do?
1: Take I don't, I don't think that they'll even come.
3: And so the, the trafficking gangs will find that actually trade falls off quite dramatically. That's my speculation. Yes.
2: But the, the, the money goes to a, a dictatorship that behaves just as poorly as trafficking gangs that yes, kills it, people, that murders if it, opponents. If it
4: actually happens, it'll be very interesting to see how many actually go to Rwanda I... because it could very well be that, you know, at the beginning, if, if this even gets through the courts, at the beginning, there'll have to be some sort of emblematic action that sends maybe 50 people to Rwanda so that it's demonstrated that that actually happens. Thereafter, the trafficking could actually start to slow. I mean, that's what happened with Australia, that it could start to slow very, very significantly. And
3: Australia uses Papua New Guinea, and it, I think it uses Nauru as well. Yeah, it does. It and does. Nauru is a little island in the middle of Micronesia, and my goodness, you wouldn't want to go there. So I say, I can only emphasize this is about deterrence, and I suspect if we stick by it, then the numbers would drop away fairly quickly. But the genuine asylum seekers, I suspect they will still keep coming. And
2: but then why, where is that process then, because if it's the, not processed, if it's processed all in Rwanda and they have to stay there whether they're here. genuine no, or not. They will be processed here. Uh,
3: they will be processed here. What's unfair?
2: Well, because it's being they're being processed, their claims in Rwanda, and yeah. the young men are still not allowed to come here if they're successful. They, they work yeah, in if Rwanda. You're
0: a genu- uh, yeah, but hang on. A so second. you are
2: sending them from a war zone to a dictatorship, which with yeah, the recent history of genocide.
0: But then you've just said you're not comfortable with it because it's Rwanda. But if it was Jersey, you'd be cool with that, because surely if someone is indeed uh, fearing for their life because they're in a regime that's brutal and they're about to die, then surely. You know, your primary and probably sole concern (coughs) is about your safety, whether that safety is in Timbuktu, Jersey or Rwanda.
2: Rwanda is another country where their safety would be probably compromised as well. It's not a a country that respects human rights. It's a country with a recent history of genocide. It's a country where anyone who speaks out against the... The leadership is persecuted.
0: Uh, By the way, I will just give a little bit more context to this because uh, this announcement today is not just about uh, the Rwandan situation. This is about uh, a package of measures. This is one of the package. Uh, What else is going to happen is apparently asylum seekers who are resettled in the UK will be spread more evenly across local authorities. Uh, Apparently, there's plans to hand operational control of the channel to the Royal Navy. That's what Mark White was just alluding to in his uh, video earlier on. £50 million in funding for new equipment and specialist personnel for channel operations Uh, and a new government facility to house migrants described as a reception centre in North Yorkshire and a maximum sentence of life imprisonment for people smugglers. And by the way, Ruth, you mentioned um, what they do in Australia. That's part of their programme, so, so Operation Sovereign. Yes. Oh, I thought you were saying... No, you were saying that they do uh, Papua New Guinea.
3: Yes, well, Mary, Mary said it first, and I agreed with her. <laughs> yes, yeah, so
0: just to, just to give some <laughs> further context to that, that was, that was part of something called uh, Operation Sovereign Borders, in case you're not familiar with it, at home. And that, again, was a, like a multi-pronged strategy. They essentially had their some of their military units, I think it was, uh, policing their border. And they also had like a turn-back kind of system, if you like, to actually, if, if boats did come across, they would be turned back to where they came from. I'm going to be slightly controversial here because not only would I do offshore processing, but I would do turn-backs as well. I'd do three things. I'd have people on the, uh, the shore in France making... I'd have megaphones, leaflets, whatever it took to make sure people understood. If you make this crossing you're not going to end up where you want to end up. So I would try and deter them getting on. If that didn't work, I would try and turn back those people that did get on. If that didn't work, I would do overseas processing. That's my personal opinion. Uh, What about yours? Lots of people coming in. I think we have consensus, as we said on the panel, about offshore processing not being a bad thing, as long as it's done in a fair place and a safe place. Uh, I think, Ruth, your point about it being a deterrent, is absolutely spot on. This is supposed to deter people from getting on those boats in the first place. Don on Twitter says the Rwandan option is economically sensible and represents a firm deterrent towards economic migrants. We simply cannot continue uh, as we are. Someone else says it's it's time some, something was finally done. That's a sense that is actually coming through. A lot of people are saying it's time, whereas Stuart said, uh, you emailed in straight off the bat when we started the show, Stuart, you were saying that basically... Uh, you'd gone off Boris, I think, because of the whole Partygate thing. And now this has turned you back on to him. A lot of people, by the way, are slightly suspicious about the timing of some of these announcements in case it is about deflecting from the Partygate. Apparently, it is not. Quick reminder, in case you've just joined us, as to my panel tonight, we've got The Economist Ruth Lee, uh, Mary Jujetsky, the columnist at The Independent, and author James Bloodworth. Now, let's talk the latest with Russia, shall we? Uh, Apparently, they've said there will be no more talk of a nuclear-free Baltic if Sweden and Finland join NATO Both nations are currently reviewing their security arrangements as there have been calls for NATO forces to ramp up the presence in the Baltic states to prevent Putin uh, from any further invasion in Europe. But Deputy Chairman of Russia's Security Council has said that Moscow would respond by strengthening their military presence on land borders. Uh, Mary, I want to pick up with you, if I may, on this one. You know, there's lots of people that will pick this up and say any country should be able to join NATO, let's pick NATO, I mean, there could be others, but let's, for the sake of argument, pick NATO. There should be any country that should be able to join NATO and free to join NATO, if they so choose, without consequences,
4: least of all from Russia. What's your thoughts? Well, I think there's two things about this. Yes, in principle, any country should be free to decide what alliances it joins. But the alliance and the existing members of that alliance also have a right to decide whether the alliance is going to be, say, stronger or weaker by adding new members. Um, And that was always going to be the problem with Ukraine. But if you look at the two contenders at the moment, if we're looking at Sweden and Finland, Mm -hmm. um, both of them are qualified in terms of their potential military capabilities they add something in defence terms to NATO. The fact that they were neutral before, arguably, was a weakening factor to NATO. If you look at a map, it actually completes what Russia would call the um, encirclement, at least of, uh, of, um, of the west of Russia's borders. Um, and you can see that from NATO's perspective, it makes sense. I mean, I, I gather that... Um, the accession of Finland could actually be a matter of weeks. Mm. Um, Sweden may take a bit longer because it's more politically contentious in Sweden, whether they lose their neutrality or not. Um, But, you know, it also has to be said, people don't think of the Nordics as being particularly um, uh, uh, Atlantic alliance-orientated, but actually the Danes and, and the Norwegians have been very staunch members of NATO. And they have I think they've supplied the last two or two of the last Secretary-Generals of, of NATO. Of, of the current one is Danish. But let me ask you this, Mary, because I know Russia. this is
0: your kind of, <coughs> of expertise, just before I bring in the other two. Russia have said repeatedly, in fact for many years actually, that the expansion of NATO towards their general direction, eastward, is what a they feel threatened by, and b has motivated them to act yes. as they have currently in Ukraine. What would you say back to that?
4: I, I mean, I agree with them. I agree with the Russians that their security has been their security has been diminished by the advance of NATO. And NATO doesn't like it being called NATO expansion because they say it's sovereign countries which were free to choose. It wasn't the expansion of NATO. It was people joining and wanting to, wanting to join the West and wanting the protection. And that is true. But if you look at it from Moscow's point of view, then the Western alliance, which Russia sees as the America-dominated alliance, has come right up to Russia's borders. But then, you know, when you look at it in the, in the light of Russia's invasion, it's the invasion of Ukraine. That has changed everything, mm. and that means that now, you know, even though I would be sympathetic to Russia saying that its security has been jeopardised by, but by, by NATO's expansion, um, I would say, well, you know, this is the if if Finland and Sweden cease to be neutral and join NATO, then you know this is a perverse effect of but Russia's actions, James.
2: Yeah, I was I was going to say the um, like NATO expansionism isn't the cause of Russian aggression. Russian aggression is why these countries now want to join NATO. Not just now, but historically, the reason why one of the reasons why Ukraine has wanted to join uh, NATO it was it was never going to happen actually because France and Germany were opposed to it. Is because Russia occupied Ukraine for for most of the twentieth century. That's why masses of millions of Ukrainians were killed by. Uh, under Russian leadership during the 20th century. That's why Ukraine wants... Uh, Russia's repeatedly in 2014, it took over the uh, Crimea and, and the Donbass. It's, this is why Ukraine wanted to join uh, NATO. And Finland has been another country that was occupied by Soviet forces in the 20th century. And now it sees, again, the threat from Russia. This is why they, these countries want to join but NATO. And me I, I do wrong, if
0: I'm wrong, because when the Warsaw Pact was kind of dissolved, disbanded, whatever you call it, was, wasn't there kind of guarantees provided to Russia that essentially NATO wouldn't keep expanding? NATO started as twelve countries; it's now thirty. You soon potentially to be thirty-two. Well, so, so isn't do you not think there's any kind of uh, sense, truth, on you know anything in what Russia say? Because you all just say you know it's not because of
2: that. No, but there were also Russia made guarantees that it would it would. <laughs> forge ahead and create a democratic country I think it, Russia's murdered citizens in in, in Britain has sent, has sent assassins to murder people in Britain It's not yeah, it so doesn't adhere right. to the democratic norms that are the European uh, countries do. so, And I think it is up to individual countries who they want to form an alliance with. We believe that in this country because we've voted very recently to withdraw from the European Union. And it's our right, sovereign right to do that. And I absolutely think the same should apply for countries. If they feel threatened by Russia, Finland, Sweden, Ukraine, they should at least have the right to apply to join NATO. And it's up to the club of, of nations in that group whether they uh, permit that country to join or not
3: Ruth? well, I think Ukraine is a particularly contentious issue in almost a, a unique situation and it 's very interesting about uh, Norway and Denmark they were actually founder members of NATO. Um, but Sweden, of course, has had this two-century history of neutrality and non-alignment, and that's a real about turn for Sweden to actually say that it now wants to belong to NATO. Finland has been in a different situation, not least of all because of its geography. It's got a very long border with, uh, with Russia, and Finland actually was part of the Russian Empire until the First World War, and that's when it began, gained its independence. I don't think people realise how Finland has been dominated by Russia <laughs> over the last... De- few decades and prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union I had very good Finnish friends and they always said that Finland had to tread very very warily between the west and between Moscow because of its geographic position however with the collapse of the Soviet Union of course what did Finland do it joined the EU and so the Finland and of course Sweden they now see themselves as integral parts of the European family and of course, if they wish to join NATO, they should join NATO. What I found fat- fascinating about their about turn recently is that the. Russian invasion of Ukraine has actually strengthened NATO. I think Putin sort of sat there and thought, well I'll go into Ukraine and I'll walk into Kiev and everybody'll say hurrah hurrah and that'll be that and NATO basically is a dead duck, it's something in the past, you know, it's and there's Joe Biden bloody bloody bloody. I don't think Putin expected the West to actually consolidate the way they did and I suspect Mr. Xi in China is looking at it as well. But I don't think they expected that. And what is interesting, this is something that James hinted at, is that actually because of the invasion of Ukraine, it's actually increased the support dramatically within... uh, Sweden and Fe- Finland for membership. And it looks as though they're going for it, which I found really very, very interesting.
0: So let's talk consequences then, because we're, it's all well and good, these conversations, very interesting, um, saying that, yes, essentially I'll paraphrase and summarise that, yes, if uh, Finland and some, uh, Sweden want to go into NATO and that's that's all, you know, all the boxes tick and it stacks up, then great. But what about the consequences Do you think there will be any? You're hearing um, uh, the the words coming out of Putin.
4: He's talking about nuclear this and consequences that, Mary. Well, I mean, it looks as though in a way we're sort of on a fast reversal to the situation as it was towards the end of the Cold War. Um, You're looking to how it was in the 1970s and the early 80s before Gorbachev and Reagan got together and started to denuclearise Europe. Um, and um, looking at all, the, 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 as it were, the great era of arms control between Reagan and Gorbachev that practically... I mean, it didn't completely demilitarise Europe, but it did an awful lot to downscale, um, including nuclear weapons in, in, in Europe, and that's being reversed. Um, and, you know, we're watching it practically by the day.
0: Hmm. Doug? Um, Well, Ian says, uh, agrees with everyone on the panel pretty much, saying that, of course, countries uh, should be free to join NATO if they choose. Um, Many people are having that sentiment. Uh, Doug says, hang on, Michelle, it seems to me that it's NATO who wants to ramp up the tensions with Russia. James?
2: Well, I mean, NATO hasn't just invaded any sovereign countries. I mean, Russia has invaded Ukraine. I mean, I I find that comparison... Ridiculous.
0: Well, Don says if Ukraine uh, is anything to go by, NATO has little to be concerned about when it comes to Russian aggression and threats. It would be a very short fight, says Don. Um, Yeah, Howard says Russia are just bullies. Uh, Putin will never nuke Sweden or Finland or anybody else. Do you think uh, Russia would use nuclear weapons, Ruth?
3: I'd be horrified and I'd be very, very surprised if they did. I think Putin's... He's obviously going to try and threaten Finland in one way or another, but, you know, I think you've just implied that given the disappointments and the and the, the difficulties that Putin is having in Ukraine, I don't think he's in any position to do that. Um, as I see, Ukraine is particularly contentious. And I notice that Zelensky has actually backed off wanting to join NATO. He did flirt with the idea. He's still flirting with the idea of joining the European Union,
0: which... Well, he said it. Was Zelensky said at one point, not that long ago, actually, that mm-hmm. they probably have to accept that NATO membership is not really going to happen. With Precisely. UK, but they can't join NATO anyway. Mary, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're far more expert than <laughs> me. They can't join NATO when you've got basically uh, like a territorial
4: dispute. Yes. Well, that's. <laughs> I mean, that 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 was the big problem, um, and the that, that that the the east of Ukraine, which is now going to be the focus of uh, the next stage of the around war. the
0: Donbass? Yes, one yeah. around,
4: around around the Donbas. Um, that that was that was the biggest argument for that basically excluded Ukraine from joining NATO from the Western point of view because there was a territory an open territorial dispute. Um, but of course from, from Russia's point of view it was because it saw Ukraine as being in its backyard and a buffer state that was vital to Russia's security and it saw the, the encroachment of, uh, of NATO. Um, which Putin had this sort of neat expression and said it wasn't just about whether um, Ukraine was in NATO, but it was also about NATO being in Ukraine. Mm. And we've seen this with the training and the weapons that Ukraine is is currently using. Mm. Um, that NATO has been a gigantic influence, and to an extent, you 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 know you look at the balance of power as it's sort of emerging in Europe, and Russia had this absolute fear of NATO's power, which it saw as this sort of all-powerful, super-equipped alliance, um, and acknowledged that Russia was quite weak by comparison. And we, on the other side, saw it completely differently. We saw big, bad Russia. And we said, oh, well, you know, NATO is, you know, it's not really united and it's all very difficult and all the rest of it. But what's happening in Ukraine is we are seeing the might of NATO operating through Ukraine. And we're also seeing the weakness of Russia. And in a way, that justifies Russia's view of itself as Mm. being weak and NATO
3: being strong. I think Russia's weakness has come as a shock to Mr Putin, don't you?
4: Well, who
0: knows what the coming days hold, eh? Lots of your thoughts coming in. Lots of you, by the way, still writing in about that first topic that we did about Rwanda. Uh, It sparked quite a reaction. I'll be reading some of them out in just a couple of minutes. But for now, do you think that your job could be done by a robot? Well, a study has calculated which workers are potentially in danger of being replaced by machines. Get this meat packers and cleaners are high on the list of jobs, whilst uh, psychiatrists, ner- neurologists, etc., are considered least likely to be replaced. Based on these findings, researchers have developed a tool uh, that you can apparently go to, put your job in, uh, and look at whether or not uh, a robot could replace you. I've got to be honest, I haven't actually checked that yet. I'm going to do it um, and see what they say whether or not a robot could do my job. Um, well, I'll save you from that. I was going to hazard a guess. I'm sure you lot will tell me what you think to that. Uh, Ruth, what do you think? Automation, robots.
3: A robot couldn't possibly do your job.
0: Well, I don't think they could be as disorganised with paperwork as what I currently am on my uh, on my desk. No,
3: it, it wouldn't have the charm.
0: Oh, that's nice, Ruth. I'm
3: trying to get round you now.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. Um, Thanks. You can definitely come again.
3: (laughs) Um, I don't think it could do my job either. But these are researchers from the École Politique. A technique fédérale de Lausanne, which is presumably in Switzerland.
0: Can I tell you Can I tell you a secret? I had that written down, but I didn't think I could pronounce it, so I missed that bit Et
3: off. Well done. technique fédérale de Lausanne. How's there that? Right. That's excellent. Well, I mean, basically, they've got an algorithm. Hasn't everybody got an algorithm these days? And decided which, way, where, you know, with increased automation, which jobs are likely to be automated. Well, as far as I'm concerned, this has partly been going on since the Industrial Revolution and the, the Luddites. Uh, so, really, it's just a, It's not exactly what I would call a big step change in the in the jobs market. It's just more of a, a gradual automation of certain jobs. And certainly you said a sort of meat packers and various other people would lose their jobs. And actually they included in this jobs most risk quite a lot of what I call services jobs, which I was surprised about, like maids. I mean, would you want a robot maid or perhaps you would want a robot maid? I don't orderly. I
0: had a robot hover and mop the other I, day and I sent it back, it was rubbish. I, and I also I, thought the Chinese was probably going to spy on me Using my Hoover, which made me a bit nervous as well. I you don't know, mind admitting.
3: Dining, r- dining room and cafeteria attendants and bartender helpers. I mean, would you do you think <laughs> robots are going to take over at the?
0: I do actually, and I think actually there's lots of. I've been to Japan, and you can go to bars there where you've got waiters. Well, not waiters, robots serving you as waiters. It's all controlled on your table, James. You know a bit about this subject.
2: I mean, I think there's a bit of a moral panic about the rise of the robots. So these reports have been. Many of the stories which we see on this, which warn of all our jobs being lost due to automation, they come from a single 2013 uh, report. So when I looked into this, this, this is what I found. And also, many of these jobs aren't pleasant jobs anyway. I don't think it's particularly a bad thing if meat packing is automated because it's not a particularly nice uh, thing to for someone to have to do anyway, I think what you have to do is um, so I mean Elon Musk, for example, he tried to automate his Tesla factory a few years ago, and it was chaos and he said he tweeted that humans are underrated. He described it as um, manufacturing hell because it, everything went wrong. Um, I think human intelligence is not the same as processing power. It's still very hard to create. But what about artificial computers.
0: intelligence?
2: Yeah, but it's still very hard to create an artificial intellig- intelligence, which is as uh, complex as human intelligence. It, it just, ha- we're nowhere near that. Yeah, I think what you have to avoid is something like what happened in the 80s, where you have de and you have lots of people who aren't trained to uh, work and function in a new kind of Economy, which, which so you have lots of people on incapacity benefit and stuff. I don't think we're, ha- we're approaching anything like that. I agree with what's been said that it's more. Of, this is more of a gradual transformation, and it will be people working alongside machines, not people being completely replaced by machines.
1: Ruth.
0: Why did I just say a roof and look at you, Mary? <laughs> so your robot wouldn't do that, would they? They'd know, they'd know who they well, were looking they talk at. talk about
4: robots. I, I, I think in connection with the survey, there was a lot of talk about ro- robots. The one thing that robots didn't seem to have was common sense. Um, and there the, were the, 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 the two sort of rather, rather spectacular examples. I think it was a couple of years ago when there was, there was a fire in an Ocado warehouse and the, it was robots that did all the picking of the, uh, the products. For internet, for, for internet sales um, and the fire ravaged the warehouse but the robots absolutely carried on regardless with their tasks which had the effect of thwarting all the fire precautions all the sprinklers and all the, all the things that were supposed to happen automatically to combat the fire were completely negated by the fact that the robots were buzzing around making it absolutely impossible for any of that to happen so that, that, that was one thing And I think probably about 10 years ago with another survey, and I don't know whether this has been rectified, um, but there was some talk about um, computers um, sort of understanding things. And they said that one of the problems was that um, computers couldn't tell the difference between a dog and a cat. And that every human being could immediately tell whether you've got a dog or a cat in front of you. But a computer would find it practical. But when impossible. was that there?
0: Because I bet modern day now some of these robots. I mean, look. If you're um, if you're listening as opposed to watching tonight, you won't be able to see what I'm playing on the screen. But I'm playing a variety of kind of uh, automatic uh, robots, drones, all these kind of different things. And you know what they actually are doing is remarkable. I mean, I've got one on the screen now that's doing. Well, an obstacle course, I suppose, I suppose you do it, and he's yeah, doing but that's, a very a, good that's job. That's a
4: mechanical sort of thing. It's, yeah. it, it's not something that needs any sort of judgment or discernment, and I think that's, that's where robots
3: lead so far. You can't tell the difference between a dog and a cat. I mean, I, I despair. <laughs> but, but, I mean, one goes meow and the other goes... How,
0: <laughs> I don't get it. How, what, how do you know if a robot knows the dog or a cat? What is the test to ascertain that? What does it do if it's a dog and
4: what does it do if it's a cat? I think it was it, it was whether they could, whether they could discern the difference and they treated the two the, the two things completely the same. Because Whereas all human beings have programmed. a preference
2: for dogs or
3: cats. <laughs> the trouble is they <laughs> hadn't been programmed depends on what the program is.
4: Mm, I'm not
0: sure. That sounds a bit fishy to me that because I actually think that you know the level of complexity and and uh Uh, Well, it is, it's artificial intelligence. Some of these machines, they're scary actually when you see some of the things that they can do. And sometimes, I've got to say I don't spend too much time thinking about robots taking over the world, but if I was to ponder it, with any kind of uh, great thought looking into some of the things that they can do, I think it is quite scary actually. I think you've got to be careful what you wish for sometimes when you're almost trying to create the future and you're pushing boundaries all the time. Um, But a robot did take my job, by the way. I used to be a checkout girl. And as you will know, if you've been to a supermarket lately, those things are few and far between, aren't they? It's all self-service these days. Yes,
4: but some of us would really like the checkout people back. Would you?
2: Yes. But the I... self-service machines are far stupider than, than checkout well, the checkout. cashier. interesting about the are least at risk? The jobs because
3: least at risk? Talked um, the, we've talked about the jobs that are most at risk, mm-hmm. but it was interesting how these researchers identified the jobs least at risk. They started by physicists, neurologists... And then pathologists, neuropsychologists, and then it went down to chief executives. Chief executives. Uh, But surgeons. But it didn't actually say politicians. So I don't know if politicians could be most at risk or least at risk. I have no idea. But I think it comes down to the fact that, uh, as Mary was saying, you know, the trouble is they will not have that sense of judgment that you hope a human being has. So I'm not terribly, terribly concerned about this. It, it, I say it, it, As far as I'm concerned, it's just a continuation of what we've seen for the last 200 years, increasing automation, which makes a lot of sense.
2: Lots of these jobs are unpleasant and this laborious, and we'd rather uh, people weren't stuff. having to do them, I think.
0: Well, uh, Bernard says, a robot couldn't be a roofer. Is that your job, Bernard? Well, he says that. Ian says, I don't think robots could take over my current obligate, uh, occupation, which is an old-age pensioner. Goats, he says, I'm sure they'd do a great job replacing members of parliaments oh, oh yeah. well Nigel says no way would a robot know uh, be able to do your job Michelle where because how would it know which days to wear red lipstick that is a very good point
3: well you'd have less scandals wouldn't you what was my job Or
0: oh parliament I thought it was all about my lipstick I was thinking <laughs> what what where have my lips been that <laughs> of course sc- anyway <laughs>